Today's Gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 1. Jesus said to the people, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son's son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. The Gospel of our Lord. Vicki. You may be seated. Grace to you and peace. I was driving through St. Paul this past Monday when I saw it. A billboard lit up against the night sky a red ribbon tied festively around a bottle of wine, a sprig of holly, and the word holidays. It was October 2nd, and Christmas advertising had begun. You guys, I flipped out in my car. I was like, I was harvesting tomatoes this morning. I'm still regularly mowing my lawn. I haven't even thought about buying Halloween candy yet, and we're already advertising into late December? Come on, America. Later that night, I reflected on my day, and I noticed something that was sad and disturbing. I had become angrier about this billboard than at the news that had broken overnight about 58 people in Las Vegas killed in the largest mass shooting in modern American history. Large-scale violence used to shock me, but somehow over the past several years, unbeknownst to my conscious brain, 
I had readjusted how I interpreted mass shootings. Instead of being standout events, I had made the shift to seeing them as part of my everyday reality. Things like this are normal to me now, I realized. Tragic, yes. Terrible, yes. But closer and closer to being unremarkable. I no longer hope for peace. I just expect violence. What happened? And how depressing is that? One of my pastor mentors shared a quote this past week from Brazilian theologian Ruben Alves. I'm going to put it on the screen so you can follow along. It says, hope is that presentiment that the imagination is more real and reality less real than we had thought. It is the sensation that the last word does not belong to the brutality of facts with their oppression and repression. It is the suspicion that the frontiers of the possible are not determined by the limits of the present. Do you see what's happened to me? I've let the brutality of the facts with their oppression and repression have the last word. I've let them drive how I interpret this world. It's like I've seen violence in the past, I see violence now, and so I conclude that I'm likely to see violence in the future, and I let that control where my mind goes. I can't let my mind go to a place where I envision a future with peace. And that carries over to how I carry myself and act in the world. And so instead of acting now toward a future with less hatred and less violence, I go on about my day after a Las Vegas or an Orlando or a Newtown, and I reserve my hottest anger toward Christmas billboards in October. That's what this broken world can do to us. It can trap us in this spin cycle in which we tell ourselves that what we see is what we'll keep getting, and so there's no point in trying to change anything because we're only going to end up disappointed and that a better world isn't possible. When we believe that the brutality of facts are the most real thing that there is, then we come to see the world as brutal and the future as brutal. We can even end up seeing God this way. Last Wednesday in our How to Read the Bible class, which, by the way, is becoming one of my favorite parts of the week, and you should think about coming if you haven't already, Pastor Beth had us read the story of, from Genesis of Jacob wrestling with God and not letting go until God blessed him. She introduced the story by reminding us of Jacob's imperfections. He's lied and stolen and impersonated his brother. He's a cunning and grabby figure. And yet, God blesses him. And I've got to say, 
this was a confusing move on God's part to many of you. <laughs> that doesn't seem right, we heard. Shouldn't Jacob have to repent before getting the blessing? One attendee was bold enough to say what many of us were thinking. I wish God hadn't done this. You can see how we arrived at these reactions to this Bible story. In the world's spin cycle of violence, the wings of our hope and the wings of our imagination and vision, they get clipped. They can only reach as high as longing for a world with a steady application of justice that incentivizes good deeds and punishes bad deeds. We don't think it wise or worth our time to envision or work toward a world filled with mercy or peace or restored relationships, at least not as a serious possibility. And then, our imaginations still wounded by the world's violence, we come to expect that God must just be like a bigger version of ourselves. We expect a God who, like us, is constrained by the same spin cycle of violence and is supposed to act accordingly, enforcing the rules of the world as they are, rather than rewriting them. We let the brutality of the facts and the limits of the present have the last word and determine how we see God. Now, some of you might have noticed that I'm like, halfway through my sermon, and I haven't even touched our reading yet. <laughs> this is why. <laughs> I think this parable, when we read it, contains a dangerous temptation in it to just view God as a bigger version of ourselves and our worst impulses, when in fact, the point this parable is trying to prove is that the God we get is decidedly unlike us in the best way possible. Jesus tells this parable of a powerful landowner who leases out his vineyard to people who work it in his absence. He sends his servants at harvest time to pick up the fruit, but the tenants mistreat and kill them. And so the landowner sends more servants who receive the same treatment, and finally, the landowner sends his son, thinking that perhaps the tenants will respect him. The landowner is mistaken, and the son is killed as well. It's at this point in the parable I'd like to point out two things. First, if you're hearing this story and wondering, so is the landowner like God and the son like Jesus, the son of God? You're not alone. Most Christians throughout history have interpreted the parable this way, and it's likely that the religious authorities that Jesus was talking to would make the connection between God and the landowner as well. Second point I'd like to make is that this is where Jesus stops telling the parable. Jesus doesn't tell the ending of this story this morning. The ending comes from the religious authorities. He lets the religious authorities finish the story for him. He asks, now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? 
the religious authorities give an answer that reeks of the brutality of the facts and that spin cycle of violence, the owner will repay them tit for tat. They've killed his son, and so he will put them to a miserable death. It's what they deserve. Surely God would rain down justice and vengeance for anyone who did something like that. The religious authorities take their way of thinking and expect God to think like that too. They figure God is just part of the violent spin cycle that we have going on down here. And so the ending we hear in the story today is not from Jesus, it's from us. Jesus does, however, tell his own ending to the parable. But he doesn't tell it with words, and he doesn't do it here. He lives it. The son is killed by human hands, not just in this parable, but in Jesus' own life. And when Jesus, the son, is killed, what does the father do? Does the father repay those who put the son to death with violence, as we would expect? Does the father cause them a miserable death like we suppose? No. When Jesus, the son, is killed, the father does the opposite of what we would expect and what we deserve. The father raises Jesus from the dead and gives him a message to share with anyone who can hear it. Peace be with you. As the father sends me, so I send you. Those are Jesus' words in the resurrection. In the resurrection of Jesus, God has broken the spin cycle of violence. God has loosed the stranglehold of the brutality of the facts. In the resurrection of Jesus, God's forgiveness and peace shown to the world and to each one of you allows us to be sent into the world bearing that same peace and forgiveness, interrupting that cycle of violence wherever we go. Because Christ rose not with vengeance, but forgiveness, we can imagine a future that's different from what we see in the present. And then we can work toward that future, trusting that God is at work in us. We can find reason to hope. Because God isn't like an angry landlord who dishes out justice like any person with power, God is like a foolish builder who takes the stones that others deem unworthy and builds a whole kingdom out of them. The logic of God doesn't make sense to this world, and that's the best news there is. Because if we only look at this world, we're not going to find many reasons to hope at all. Just like my desensitization, desensitization to gun violence, the stories this world tells, and the logic it lives by, it causes us to go numb or to despair. But God's hope from beyond the world breaks into our minds and our hearts and our actions and this very world through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God disrupts the brutal stories we keep writing and telling and living to write a new story among us, 
a story of mercy and peace and abundance and reconciliation. If you can't find hope in this world, if the facts all around you are too brutal, look to Jesus. He will widen your imagination and strengthen your hope. Amen.